0: The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the Century of Lies.
1: Hello and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Ahead of World AIDS Day, which is December 1st, Georgetown University's Global HIV Policy Lab has released a new report entitled Progress and the Peril, HIV and the Global Decriminalization of Same-Sex-Sex. At the start of the AIDS epidemic, most countries in the world criminalize same-sex sexuality. According to this new report, as of 2023, 129 countries, two-thirds of all states, do not criminalize same-sex sex, representing a significant reversal. Despite this, anti lgbtq persecution is on the rise in some countries, undermining progress to end AIDS. On November 14th, experts from the O'Neill Institute, UNAIDS, the United Nations Development Program, and the Global Network of People Living with HIV delivered a briefing on their findings. Today on Century of Lies, we're going to hear from some of these experts. First up... Dr. Matthew Kavanaugh is director of the Center for Global Health Policy and Politics at the O'Neill
2: Institute and a professor in the
1: Department of Global Health in the School of Health at Georgetown University.
2: We're here to launch the HIV Policy Lab report. It is a report coming from a collaboration between United Nations, academic and civil society organizations to track, measure and improve the HIV-related law and policy environment around the world. We track 33 different indicators um, across 194 countries. And um, today, we're going to talk about one of those indicators. But you can go to the website and see all 33. On this issue, the HIV Policy Lab measures two different pieces. First, it measures the de jure content of law. It measures whether or not a country in written law makes it a criminal offense um, to have or engage in same-sex sexuality. That is the core measure that we we use for understanding what the written law is. And then the second measure is whether a country's um, policy is to avoid prosecuting people for same-sex acts. The Global Commission and a wide variety of UN agencies have called for where there is a problematic criminalizing law that countries should not enforce it. There should be a moratorium. And some countries have clearly responded to that, whether or not it's a written moratorium or simply um, simply what we call a de facto policy. At the start of the AIDS response, 120, over 120 countries and territories around the world, the vast majority of the world at the time, criminalized same sex sex um, at the time. We are now seeing, this report shows, a reversal of that trend so that now 129 countries around the world do not criminalize same sex sex in 2023. That has been a key part of securing the progress that's been made against HIV. Today, as of this year, two thirds of countries do not criminalize same sex sex in written law. That means that today, 63% of all the people living with HIV in the world are living in contexts where same-sex sexuality is not illegal. Just in the last few years, since 2017, we've seen 13 countries decriminalize consensual same-sex sex under law. It's a wide variety of countries. You see them here in multiple different regions of the world, at multiple different income levels. Some of the world's leading economies have made this move. Some of the countries with the highest rates of HIV have made this move just in the last few years, following the science and following the evidence that we will talk about. The trend is very clear. The trend is toward decriminalization. And in fact, countries are getting closer and closer to reaching that 10-10-10 target with the fastest progress coming in the Caribbean and in the East and Southern African region, where many, many countries just in the last few years have moved towards decriminalization. The second piece that the policy lab measures is, are, is there a policy of enforcing criminalizing laws where they are on the books? And what we find is that of those countries that criminalize, 37% of them don't actually enforce the law as written, 24 countries around the world. So of the 129 countries that don't criminalize, plus we can report that 24 countries, for the very best of our efforts to, to find the information, it seems we have no reports of prosecutions in 24 additional countries. The policy lab report also runs through a number of different public health impacts. And I wanna highlight a few right here of this process. The reason why we're here talking about the decriminalization of LGBTQ people around the world is because it has a clear link to HIV outcomes. Two studies using HIV Policy Lab data show two important findings. One, that in fact, not only are there higher rates of HIV among gay men and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men um, in countries that do criminalize, but that the the gap between between MSM, um, gay men and other men who have sex with men, and the general adult population of men in the country, that gap is In most countries, real, and in countries that don't criminalize, gay men have a 7.2% higher prevalence, but in countries that do criminalize, the gap, the inequality between those two groups is 24.8% difference in prevalence. That's a massively different gap. That's the work of law, that in fact, we see that this is not just for gay men and other men who have sex with men, but it's also for the general population that we found that at the highest level that actually knowledge of HIV status among the whole population and viral suppression among the whole population is significantly higher where decriminalization has happened. Amidst all of this progress, we have to report that there are also counter trends that we see deepening criminalization in countries that are out of step with those global trends that are imposing harsher penalties, long prison sentences, expanding the scope of criminalization. And the report details um, challenges in places like um, like Russia, like Uganda, like the United States of America, when it comes especially to trans people like Hungary, where we're seeing contexts of increasing efforts to criminalize. Um, And those are worrying, those are clearly out of step with the global trend. And our hope is that actually the global trends will continue and that shift will, uh, will be reversed. I would be remiss if I didn't also just mention briefly non-discrimination protections. That just simply not criminalizing is insufficient to receive the full public health benefits we know come from from a a smart legal environment that's actually pro-health. And so what we see here is that while many countries have decriminalized, less than half of countries that don't criminalize also have protections on the basis of both gender identity and sexual orientation. And so there's work to do around the world. I won't go into the details, but the report also gives you case studies on decriminalization in Angola, Mauritius, Singapore, Botswana, India, Cook Islands, Gabon, and Antigua and Barbuda. And what it shows is that there are multiple pathways to decriminalization, that there's no one-size-fits-all, and that most places at one point looked impossible until they were possible. The report also makes the economic case and shows the significant positive impact on GDP, as well as the strong human rights case.
1: That was Professor Matthew Kavanaugh, Ph.D., Director of the Center for Global Health Policy and Politics at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. Dr. Kavanaugh presented the findings of a new report by Georgetown's Global HIV Policy Lab entitled Progress and the Peril at a news conference November 14th. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Florence Anum is the Co-Executive Director of the Global Network of People Living with HIV.
3: So everyone, um, hello and thank you for the opportunity to provide uh, the perspectives of our organization, the Global Network of People Living with HIV, GNP+. A little about us, we are a global network of people living with HIV, run by people living with HIV. Our vision is a world where every person living with HIV enjoys their right to a healthy and dignified life free from stigma and discrimination. At GMB+, we provide global leadership in advocacy for access to treatment and the attainment of quality of life for all people living with HIV, regardless of their sexual orientation and gender identities, how they choose to live their lives. And so we are committed to representing the needs and priorities of those of us who are underserved, marginalized, are excluded from health and other services and are prevented from participating in the decisions that impact their lives most of the people we shall be talking about today it is why this impo- this this work was important for gnp plus the findings of this report you've had today and thanks matt for sharing a brief overview of that are both chilling and inspiring chilling because Coming from East Africa, I also live in a space where I see the repercussions of what you're reading today. We are inspired by the progress of the LGBTQ communities and their allies, including us, the people living with HIV. But also sometimes I don't think we are allies. Within all people living with HIV lie everyone within the LGBTQ community in the decades long effort to throw off the mantle of colonial and discriminatory laws that have criminalized same sex sex in our countries. The trend is clear. Most of the world is rejecting criminalization. However, we are also deeply concerned about those places that are out of step with that trend and instead continuing to deepen criminalization persecution, and discriminalization against the LGBTQ communities. I'm speaking as a Kenyan and I can share how deeply worried I am about the coordinated efforts that are happening in East Africa to replicate these laws and condone violence and discrimination that we are seeing in Uganda. But that I've also seen and witnessed as some of my peers and colleagues get attacked day in, day out in my country this year. The inability to work, to be able to come together, comes from the fact that there is this coordinated effort. I think some of the reality is we don't need the law to be in place. The idea that some people are othered already makes it impossible for us to exist, to be able to do our work, for people to access HIV prevention and treatment intervention. We need to push back against this for the sake of people's dignity, human rights, And health and HIV. The global AIDS response has for decades understood protection of human rights as inextricably linked to stopping HIV transmission and ending AIDS deaths. Criminalization drives people away from HIV services and opportunities to bring their knowledge and their strength to participate in the AIDS response. We cannot have programs and interventions that respond to the needs of all people living with HIV if some of us do not be are not able to come into the room and share what their needs are confidently it also tells them the state wants to arrest them not recognize them they are not important but it tells everyone around them that this is the true case hence the violence the deeper the criminalization the worst the public health harm. A study using the HIV policy lab data showed gay men and other men who have sex with men living under criminalizing law had five times the odds of living with HIV compared with those in non-criminalizing contexts. But in countries with recent prosecutions of people under these laws, gay men had 12 times higher the odds. In countries that decriminalize HIV, that decriminalize HIV, outcomes are better. We see that people living with HIV were more likely to know their HIV status because they were not scared of of persecution, and more likely to suppress the virus because they are able to take their treatment, use their treatment well, reach out for help in case they are facing any challenges with remaining adherable uh, to, to adhere to treatment, and the result is they became undetectable. We also know that when someone living with HIV gets to undetectable viral load, they cannot pass the virus. The success of the treatment can only be realized by all people living with HIV in an environment that does not decriminalize, that does not criminalize. The region with the largest number of people living with HIV are part of the trend. Countries like Botswana, Angola, India, are choosing not to criminalize. Almost half, which is like 43% of countries in Eastern and Southern Africa, which accounts for almost 43% of the countries in Eastern and Southern Africa. More than 52% of the countries in West and Central Africa and 60% of countries in Asia Pacific region do not criminalize today. But this only makes the severity of some of our people and communities, what it is they are facing more clearer. For these countries, criminalizing same-sex sex is like fighting HIV with one hand behind their back. It's, I'd like to end with a call to action. The struggle for our rights and dignity and quality of life has reached fervent urgency now more than ever. Repressive laws, institutionalizing, decriminalization, um, institutionalizing criminalization, prejudice, violence against our communities, particularly those based on sexual orientation and gender identities, do not serve us. They cause harm. They lead to death. Our friends are getting harmed and killed. We ask that you join and support the growing movement for decriminalization and continue to tear down walls of this decriminalization and discrimination and injustice. To end HIV, all of us, people living with HIV, must access treatment, get undetectable, and achieve quality of life.
1: That was Florence Anand, co-executive director of the Global Network of People Living with HIV, speaking at a news conference November 14th on the launch of a new report from Georgetown University's Global HIV Policy Lab entitled Progress and the Peril. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Vivek Devan is coordinator of the Center for Health Equity, Law, and Policy at the Indian Law Society.
0: Uh, First, a little bit of background. I'm a lawyer from India who has long worked at the intersections of sexuality, health and rights, with a particular focus on HIV and LGBTQ contexts. I identify as queer, and I had the great fortune of being at the heart of the decades-long LGBTQ decriminalization effort in India. Uh, This was a challenge to the colonial era uh, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code. Uh, a law which is, uh, which the British then took uh, all around the Caribbean, and parts of Asia, and certainly parts of Africa. Uh, the litigation that led to the decriminalization of queer people in India was filed in 2001 through an HIV NGO. It had many ups and downs, being dismissed on the grounds of locus standard in 2004, reinstated in 2005 by the Supreme Court, and finally heard in 2008, with a positive decision being adjudicated in 2009, all by the Delhi High Court. So this was when we were first decriminalized. Thereafter, we were recriminalized by the Supreme Court in appeal in 2013, which saw the errors of its own ways and finally decriminalized us in 2018. So that's two decade long journey. There were many uh, unique aspects to this journey, as there are with most intrepid efforts, but I will highlight one which was unprecedented in my reading. It was this. The case was at its heart embedded in the queer community. It was a participatory approach at litigating that provided an opportunity for the queer community to be educated about how the law and the courts work, and an opportunity for a robust engagement of legal literacy by the lawyers involved in the case, many of whom, including myself, were from the community. Uh, to To demystify the law and to make its jargon and pomp accessible, and unintimidating to the queer community. What was the impact of such a collective, complex, uh, participatory effort? This resulted in the sort of empowerment and energy that galvanized a vast civil society effort led by LGBTQ collectives and organizations. This collective effort led to, to so many other positive developments, I'll name a few. Uh, One, the creating of alliances with other movements and ecosystems. We worked with the HIV movement, we worked with the women's rights movement, we worked with the labor rights movement, we worked with child rights movements and ecosystems. They became allies in this journey of seeking decriminalization. Uh, There was a realization that one group's marginalized, uh, one marginalized group's decriminalization meant uh, the oppression of all. The informed strategic thinking around how to proceed with the case when it was confronted with setbacks was something that was nurtured through this participatory process. Everything from thinking about including working to identify parents of queer people, historians who have actually looked at queer history in India, mental health experts who all filed their own supporting petitions to strengthen the main petition and main case. Another very positive outcome was the advocacy with the Health Ministry and the National AIDS Control Organization to file an affidavit in court to support decriminalization, which was at odds with the affidavit of the Home Ministry of the same government, in charge of criminal law, which said criminalization should remain on the books. So the court saw the contradictory approaches of the government because of the phenomenal advocacy effort of civil society, the HIV movement, uh, LGBTQ uh, networks, etc. And finally, a very critical realization that in a deeply classist society, such as India, it was vital that the case is representative of and amplifies the most marginalized of our varied queer realities in order to demonstrate the violent impact of criminalization on all our lives. Uh, This was important because often the courtroom is a place you go to, which is largely inaccessible to most, most of the population. It's deeply intimidating, it is very expensive, and we really wanted to make this case open the doors of the court and for the community to feel that they could walk in and actually claim their rights and the most marginalized amongst us. Uh, And I think uh, this case really did that in powerful, powerful ways through the testimonies of queer people very much at the margins. Uh, all of this contributed to, to greatly nuanced decisions, both of the Delhi High Court in 2009, which I mentioned, in the first instance, and then in 2018 by the Supreme Court, which were the positives. But when there was crisis, this sort of collectivization also stood us in good stead, because there was anger and protest when, when, when we came to, on the, to the streets and lost in 2013, which was the exercise of the democratic right to free speech when rights were denied. Uh, it was a powerful moment with which the press and the media covered where uh, the campaign was uh, called no going back. The community fought back to see, uh, to, 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 to find, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to get to the courtroom again and to actually revisit the case, which, was, which happened in 2018. Uh, let me end by saying that while other challenges continue for the queer community, the way in which we fought decriminalization holds us today in good stead. Uh, where we have community groups that have created robust support networks to counter violence or link queer people with health and other services. And by health, I don't mean just HIV anymore, uh, mental health services and other issues. And where legal aid now exists uh, through uh, lawyers' groups uh, to assist queer people in need. Uh, There are other challenges that some of you might have read about in recent news, which I don't want to get into, uh, but I'm happy to answer about. But I think uh, the India experience is a really interesting one in the way in which we came together not to, uh, to, to really be representative of this vast array of us who are LGBTQ and to actually make the court realize our realities in an, in, in, in an impactful way, which, uh, which hopefully others can learn from in, in, in their efforts through the courtroom, certainly. Thanks.
1: That was Vivek Devan, coordinator of the Center for Health Equity, Law and Policy at the Indian Law Society, speaking at a news conference November 14th on the launch of a new report from Georgetown University's Global HIV Policy Lab entitled Progress and the Peril. A full copy of the report can be downloaded for free from the HIV Policy Lab's website, HIVPolicyLab.org. That's HIVPolicyLab.org. And finally, on the previous edition of Century, we heard about Transform Drug Policy Foundation's new publication entitled How to Regulate Psychedelics, a Practical Guide. There's a rather important bit that we couldn't squeeze into last week's show. So while we have time, here's Esther Kinseva, Public Affairs and Policy Manager at the Transform Drug Policy Foundation.
4: In terms of equity programs, psychedelic reforms should look to some of the good examples of community-led work in emerging cannabis markets. And so much of this work that we have done is already based on some of that. There are several elements that can be embedded in licensing frameworks for psychedelic cultivation and production, retail, and supervised and guided use, and we believe equity programs should be available across all spectrums of these models so that social justice and equity is prioritized. Equity programs should include removal of financial barriers for equity applicants, including fees for applications, licensing, and other associated costs prioritize equity applicants in the licensing process, provide technical assistance and wraparound benefits, including legal and account services, and uh, provision of workforce and development training. All of these are extremely vital, but they must also be underpinned by a continuous review of these programs to ensure that they are achieving their stated outcomes, and a uh, room room created to be able to adjust and respond to any issues to ensure that the potential of these programs are maximized. So finally, to protection for religious and indigenous uses. So firstly, we make very clear in um, the beginning of our guide that as Transform, in our social context as a wise organization based in the UK, we are not touching uh, upon the regulation framework of any religious or indigenous use. However, as these communities re- risk being some of the most impacted by an emerging psychedelics market and already are uh, exist- experiencing this, it's important to ensure that cultural sensitivity and repertory justice for indigenous communities is embedded into policy reforms. The right of religious and indigenous communities to freedom of belief and practice must be secured and not be encroached upon by regulatory frameworks for other forms of access at all. Such practices have frequently been undermined, stigmatized, and in many cases criminalized. We in the book do highlight the international guidelines on human rights and drug policy, which provide more detail on what such protections should look like. However, these guidelines compiled by a series of international uh, organizations, including the UN Development Programme, WHO, etc. They have compiled this, but they are not representing a formal legal mechanism. This means there are very limited international legal protections for specifically indigenous communities that that exist at UN level, and those that do exist are very inadequate. This makes the need for state level exemptions and protections far more necessary. We have drawn attention to some of these exemptions that exist at a domestic level, including the permitted use of peyote cactus by members of the Native American church in the United States, as well as religious exemptions existing in the US and Canada for the, I'm so sorry for my pronunciation, the Do Vegetal, uh, a church which imports ayahuasca for its use in ceremonies. This is an element that we've explored as a proposal, but we really recognize that actually these decisions need to be made on the ground by people affected in their communities and their respective legal mechanisms. In regards to justice for indigenous communities, specifically regarding exploitation or appropriation of traditional psychedelic practices, and then the potential exclusion from the benefits of psychedelic reforms, we really urge for policy to be nuanced and indigenous-led. The lack of participation and inclusion of members of Indigenous communities within academic research already highlights the absolute urgency of this. Within the guide, we highlight some of the existing work already being done that policymakers could should be aware of, including organizations promoting benefit sharing. The ben- benefit sharing is the idea of giving a portion of advantages or profits that are um, gained by corporations from the use of genetic resources or traditional knowledge to Indigenous communities in order to achieve justice in exchange for reforms that are benefiting people making companies making money elsewhere. Uh, I summarize all of that with recognizing that this is a very complex issue and that there is obviously no singular indigenous community and that this is an opportunity for people to be listened to and to open up dialogue that is non-extractive and providing the voice, giving the voice to the individuals who are most impacted.
1: That was Esther Kinsova, public affairs and policy manager at the Transform Drug Policy Foundation, speaking at the launch November 14th of Transform's new publication entitled How to Regulate Psychedelics, a Practical Guide. And that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the Century of Lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy.